and welcome to the podcast for the journal Integrated Environmental Assessment and Management, better known as IEAM. I'm Jenny Shaw. The January 2013 issue of IEAM contains an article that addresses the standardization of wildlife toxicity values for ecological risk assessment. Today we are speaking with the authors of that paper, David Mayfield and Anne Fairbrother. David and Anne, thank you for joining us today. Hello, Jenny. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to be here. Thank you. David is the lead author on the article, and he's a senior toxicologist at the environmental consulting firm Gradient, where he specializes in toxicity and human and ecological risk assessment. Anne is a principal scientist at the engineering and scientific consulting firm Exponent, where she works in the field of ecotoxicology, wildlife toxicology, contaminated site assessments, and regulatory science. So Anne, would you start by explaining what toxicity reference values are and how they're used in ecological risk assessments? When we're conducting an ecological risk assessment, we need to know how much exposure to a toxic substance an animal can have before the substance starts to cause problems to that animal. As you know, it's an age-old adage and also the foundation of the science of toxicology that the dose makes the poison So not every exposure to a foreign substance results in a measurable adverse effect. A toxicity reference value, which we call TRVs, will be the dose or sometimes the concentration in the diet of a chemical above which it's reasonable to expect that an adverse effect will occur to at least some of the animals in a population and below which we're confident that no such effects will occur. We use these TRVs to estimate how much of a chemical could be put into the environment without causing undue harm to wildlife, such as when we're doing a pesticide risk assessment, for example. And sometimes we use them to calculate the amount of cleanup that would be required to make a contaminated site safe for these wild animals. Now, a TRV can be based on any endpoint. Generally, we think about growth reproduction and survival, but TRVs sometimes are based on things like behavior, some biomarker, or even the up or down regulation of a gene. It's also important to remember that TRVs are specific to the species that have been tested to look at their toxicological response. Which endpoint we use for a risk assessment is really a matter of policy up to this point, and it has not been particularly science-based. For screening ecological risk assessments, we often look for the species that is most sensitive to the chemical and therefore has the lowest TRV. And in some cases, we even try and find the most sensitive endpoints so we can really be protective of all of the species that may be on the site. We then use that as a threshold for the amount of chemical exposure that would be acceptable. For setting cleanup goals or for risk mitigation programs, we generally tend to focus more on a particular species or a group of species that we're concerned about. And the endpoints then may be driven by the life history of the species of concern. Let me give you an example. A species such as a small rodent that has a high mortality rate and an equally high reproduction rate would likely be most affected by a change in reproductive output. So you'd look for a TRV based on reproduction endpoints. On the other hand, you might have a long-life species with low reproduction rate where it would be more impacted by increased mortality, particularly of adults, so you'd look for a mortality-based endpoint. In fact, we recently held a workshop to address this question of how to move from developing TRVs for screening-level assessments 
which is pretty much what we had talked about in our paper, to choosing TRVs that would be appropriate for determining soil cleanup values. In fact, Dave, um, the primary author on this paper, is going to discuss this a little further later in this podcast, and there should also be a series of papers on the topic um, that would appear in IEM next year in 2013. Thanks, Anne. We'll look forward to those papers next year. The main thrust of your paper is the lack of standardization of TRVs. To address the problem, the US EPA developed an approach almost 10 years ago called the Ecological Soil Screening Level, or ECOSSL. But this has been slow to catch on. Why do you think people have been slow to adopt ECOSSLs? That's a good question, Jenny. Um, EPA's ECOSSL approach was intended to provide risk assessors with a common set of soil concentrations to be used in screening level ecological risk assessments at contaminated sites. The soil concentrations for wildlife are developed by combining toxicity thresholds, TRVs, and exposure assumptions, such as food ingestion rates and organism body weights. For this program, EPA and stakeholders developed a series of standard operating procedures to identify appropriate toxicological literature, to evaluate the quality of relevant studies, and to extract the data necessary for TRV development. This approach provided a transparent and repeatable method that could be implemented on a national scale. As we evaluated recent ecological risk assessments in our paper, Ann and I found that generally less than half of the risk assessments utilize TRVs developed through the ECOSSL program. Now, there are several possible reasons for why risk assessors choose to select alternative TRVs. For example, since the ECOSSLs were developed for generic screening level risk assessments, some risk assessors may have selected one TRV for the screening stage and a different TRV for the baseline or detailed risk assessment. In some cases, risk assessors use the same TRV in both the screening and detailed portions of the risk assessment process, while in other cases, TRVs were selected to be specific for the species of concern at their site. Another possible reason for the variation that we saw in TRVs may be due to the selection of an alternative biological endpoint. Since ECOSSLs focused on growth, survival, and reproduction, some risk assessors may have selected a TRV based upon an alternative endpoint, such as a biochemical change or damage to a specific tissue. Finally, some risk assessors may have selected a TRV from an alternative publication, such as the Oak Ridge National Laboratory's toxicological benchmarks. So there are many reasons why people did not select the ECOSSL TRVs, and that's what we explored in our paper. So do you agree with this approach, or do you have recommendations for how to improve it? I think both Anna and I would agree that standardized protocols and data quality evaluation tools that were used in the ECOSSL program are valuable and useful for screening level risk assessments. However, when a chemical is identified as a potential risk driver based on comparisons with ECOSSLs, risk assessors should consider reevaluating the data underlying the TRV for that chemical and the species of concern at their site. Since the ECOSSLs were intended to be broadly protective, and were selected based on conservative threshold values, such as no observed adverse effect levels, they're often found to be overprotective. 
Now, as Anne mentioned previously, we participated in a workshop a few months ago to explore additional recommendations to improve wildlife TRV development techniques. Some of the tools that risk assessors may want to consider include using more robust statistical techniques to examine the full dose response curve rather than relying on single point estimates such as NOLs and LOLs. Another possible option is to examine tissue-based thresholds rather than oral dose metrics. These options may reduce the uncertainty in the risk analysis and provide more meaningful concentration response relationships for use in developing site cleanup values. As you both might be aware, NOAC and LOAC values have been intensely debated in numerous articles in IEAM over the past year. Are there other metrics, such as dose response or species sensitivity distributions, for generating TRVs and their potential to improve the process? Yes, this is a very good question, Jenny. As you know, NOAC and LOAC values were intended to be used as threshold values. And in fact, the names are intuitively obvious, right? A NOAC is the highest concentration that an animal can withstand without developing any measurable symptoms, and a LOAC is the lowest concentrations where we can reliably see that some portion of the population would show adverse effects. So intuitively, one would think then that the true toxicity threshold lies somewhere between these two. But these numbers don't tell us what proportion of the population is likely to be affected when you're at the LOAC value nor do they tell us what level of effect is needed in order to be measurable. And unfortunately, their derivation is subject to experimental design and the amount of variability that's inherent in the measured endpoint value. We can, however, redesign our experiments to develop complete dose-response curves, as you mentioned, or sometimes even with wildlife, we'll have concentration response curves if we're looking at dietary exposures. Now, the advantage of having a dose-response relationship is that a risk assessor can then talk with a risk manager to determine what level of effect is considered acceptable or unacceptable. Are you looking for a level that would cause a 10% effect or a 20% effect? This is the kind of information you can get from a dose-response curve that you cannot get from a NOAC or LOAC study. Could you briefly touch on the role of safety and uncertainty factors for TRVs? Certainly, sometimes we have very little data, either for the development of a TRV for a specific species of concern or for the selection of a hazard concentration from an SSD when we have only a few species and can't develop a very robust frequency distribution. So in these kinds of situations, a risk manager may feel uncomfortable making decisions on the basis of a sparse amount of data and worry that some very sensitive species would not be protected by the risk analysis. Therefore, they would apply a safety factor, which we sometimes call an uncertainty factor, and divide the TRV or the hazard concentration by some arbitrary value, say 3, 5, or most frequently 10. But it's important to recognize that these safety factors have no scientific basis, and they're really used only as a matter of policy to make the risk manager feel less nervous about making a decision that might result in jeopardy to wildlife species of concern. We're more likely to use safety factors during a screening assessment to be sure that we don't rule things out before they should be. When we get to a final assessment or development of cleanup goals, 
we generally are much more focused on particular species of interest or specific locations or exposure pathways. Thank you, Anne. We've been talking about uncertainty and safety factors, and there's also just an incredible amount of variability among TRVs for different species, endpoints, experimental methods, and statistical analyses. So how optimistic are you that such large differences in TRVs could actually be reduced to more manageable levels? I believe that the work conducted under EPA's EcoSSL program has been beneficial to the science of risk assessment, and it has generated useful guidance for risk assessors and provides an extremely valuable compilation of toxicological data. Further, I believe that this program has influenced other researchers to continue to develop better tools to evaluate ecological risks. So I'm hopeful that new scientific methods can and will be applied in the future to reduce the uncertainty in wildlife TRVs. Certainly, there are improvements to be made in the use of screening-level TRVs, as we discussed in our paper. For instance, Additional guidance on the selection and use of EcoSSL TRVs would be beneficial for the risk assessment community. In addition, EPA could implement a model similar to the integrated risk information system called IRIS, which is used to develop toxicity values for human health risk assessment. This could provide a venue for scientists to evaluate and debate the generation of wildlife TRVs. So are there specific lessons you think we can learn from other U.S. or international agencies that utilize TRVs? Uh, Yes. Other countries and governmental agencies have not yet completely solved the issues we've been talking about today, but there are a few limited examples of risk assessments in the U.S. that have conducted more rigorous analyses of TRVs. Uh, Recently, a paper by Sample et al. 2011 in IEAM provides a good example of a detailed concentration response assessment for songbirds exposed to lead at a mining site in Idaho. In addition, the state of Utah developed a bird egg tissue-based criterion for assessing exposure to selenium in the Great Salt Lake, again using a very detailed concentration response technique. Internationally, Risk assessments under the European REACH regulation have examined tissue-based TRVs for lead in blood and cadmium in kidney tissues for evaluating risk to wildlife. So, Jenny, there are a few examples that are available for risk assessors to examine, and these provide some alternative methods for improving TRVs. Thank you, David. Well, this sounds like an ongoing conversation, and we look forward to hearing more about the response to your current article, but also forthcoming discussion to come from your future series of articles next year in IEAM. David and Anne, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Jenny. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Jenny. You've been listening to David Mayfield and Anne Fairbrother discuss their article, Efforts to standardize wildlife toxicity values remain unrealized. Access the article in the January 2013 issue of IEAM. Just go to ctacjournals.org. I'm Jenny Shaw, and thank you for listening to the IEAM podcast.